This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please take your copy of the scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We're making our way through the love chapter this summer. And if you would, please listen as I read verses 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Father in heaven, I wish tonight to once again call upon your Holy Spirit to fill me, to empower me, to enable me, Lord, to bless me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Lord, to gift me, to enable me, so that I might preach the word tonight in a way which would be very helpful to your people. I thank you for your people. I thank you for the church of God, which you purchased with your own blood. Lord, now as I speak to the church, I pray, dear Lord, that as we learn what love is, I pray, Lord, that tonight that there will be a sincere desire for application. And Lord, the actual doing of the text tonight, Lord, will be something which you will work in our hearts. Lord, please make us a people people that are not envious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My title tonight is, You Can't Always Get What You Want. My first point tonight concerning envy is this. Love comes naturally. Love comes naturally. I believe that with all my heart. Love doesn't need to be taught, doesn't need to be learned. It is not a behavior which we acquire. It's not an emotion which we conjure up. How to love is like saying how to breathe. It comes very naturally. We all know how to do it and we all know how to do it very well. Every person, when it comes to love, is an expert. We are all professionals, Rembrandts, Mozarts, secretariats, when it comes to love. Love is not difficult. It is not laborious. It is not painful. Love comes naturally. And every single person in this room listening to my voice right now is in love. And you have been in love for as long as you can remember and even longer. And you will be in love until the day that you die. And ironically, we are all in love with the same person. And that person is the person that you look at in the mirror. We are all madly in love with ourselves. Some more than others, but every person has an undying devotion and affection and adoration and a heartfelt passion for numero uno, 
The greatest love of all is not learning to love yourself, Whitney. You don't have to learn that. Greater love knows no man than this, but that a man should lay down his life for his friends. But you do not have to learn how to love yourself. It comes naturally. You were hardwired with this skill set, and so was I. Now, some would argue and say, I don't love myself. In fact, I don't even like myself. Or it took me years to learn how to love myself. Or actually, they might say, I hate myself. And I'm going to argue and say, you don't hate yourself. And I'm going to make my argument both scripturally and logically, not that they are mutually exclusive. First of all, scripturally, what does the scripture say about your love for you? Ephesians 5.29, Paul writes that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And what's the first thing that's going to mark those times? People will be lovers of self. Jesus put it this way, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now some have taken this, and I don't know where they get this, They have taken this to mean that you must learn how to love yourself and then you will be able to love others. First of all, that's not what it says. Secondly, it makes no sense whatsoever and it's not biblical. Scripture says that we do love ourselves and this also makes perfect logical sense. It makes sense to all of you, especially who say that you hate yourselves. You don't hate yourself. Now, you might be displeased with something about your life or the circumstances in your life. Maybe you don't like your nose or your voice or your personality or your waistline or your skill set or your teeth or your IQ or your home or your car or your lack of car. Maybe you don't like the fact that you have an inability to get a good job or an inability to cultivate a lasting relationship but you still love yourself. You just wish those circumstances would change. You wish those things were better. You wish those things were different. And the reason you wish those things were different is because you love you and I love me. If you really hated yourself, then you would celebrate the deficiencies and the defects and the shortcomings and the defeats in your life. I mean, think about it. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but just think about it. Have you ever hated or disliked strongly anybody or anything? Shouldn't be too hard to think about. You know the answer to that. Well, then let me ask you a question. How did you feel when those people experienced some sort of a setback? I mean, let's go all the way back to grade school. When their toy broke or when their bicycle was stolen, you smiled. Moving on a little bit later, when they failed a test or when they had an outbreak, and I'm not just talking about a blemish here now, but I'm talking about an Old Testament proportion outbreak of acne, you had a party. When their heart was broken, when they didn't get a job, when they struck out, when they missed the foul shot, when they filed for for bankruptcy, when their marriage just didn't quite work out, it made you feel pretty good. If you were to be honest with yourself. And I'm talking now about someone that you really hated. When you really hate someone or dislike them strongly, 
you are inwardly joyful when they meet with hard times. But you don't throw a party when things are falling apart in your own life. And the reason that you don't do that is because you love you. You know, often from this pulpit, standing right where I am right here, whether it's during announcements or whether it is during a sermon, there has been much fodder that has been generated and has been used to speak sometimes in jest and sometimes by way of illustration. But there's no secret that generally speaking that those who stand behind this pulpit hate the Yankees, the New York Yankees. Why is it that we hate them? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. They're the best organization in professional sports. They win all the time. They look good in their uniforms. They do everything better than we do. No, it's not, that doesn't call for an amen, it's, but, it's, but it's a truthful statement. But, and it makes us joyful when they lose. On the other hand, proof of self-love is seen in the fact that when your circumstances improve, you feel better. Circumstantial improvements are proof of self-love. Uh, here's an example. Jonah said that he hated his life and he wanted to die because God was about to show mercy upon the people of Nineveh, his enemies. But his emotional state was elevated when a plant grew overnight and provided him with shade. Listen to the words of Jonah 4.6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Why? Because Jonah loved Jonah. You don't hate yourself. You love yourself. So much so that you wish your circumstances were different. And that is why the story of the genie in the bottle will never grow old. We have all imagined that genie popping out for us and giving us those three wishes because we want to order our own universe as we see fit. And those who say that they hate themselves, I will argue, actually love themselves more than the rest of us. For if you really hated yourself, you would rejoice when things in life were going sour. But as it stands, you want those things to change because you love you. Point number one, love comes naturally. You love you. Here's point number two. Envy comes naturally. And I will argue that envy is the most powerful emotion associated with self-love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, love does not envy. Now, here's a brief word about the context. Love in 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking not about self-love, but it's speaking about love for one another. Uh, More specifically, it is talking about love within the local church, and more specifically still, it is about love for others in the local church with respect to spiritual gifts or abilities. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, the text that I read tonight, Paul lists eight negative characteristics about what love is not. Now, last week, we learned very briefly, right up front, from Parker's message, what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Then he goes into this 
octagon of antithesis, eight straight items which spell out what love is not. And tonight we begin and we study what love is not and envy is at the head of the class. Here's a general rule when it comes to hermeneutics or the interpretation of scripture. Anytime you see a list in the Bible, the order is not random, but it's very intentional. And usually the author takes the item which is of greatest weight and puts it in the front. For example, the fruit of the Spirit is love. There were 12 disciples, Simon, who is called Peter. Love does not envy. This is the weightiest of the negative items. And Solomon recognized the power of envy or jealously, jealousy, and I will use these words interchangeably, in Proverbs 27.4, where he says, Wrath is cruel. Well, don't we know that? And anger is overwhelming. But he's about to tell you something which is even stronger than wrath and stronger than anger. But who can stand before jealousy? To be placed in front of anger and wrath shows that you have something pretty significant here in envy. And yet, as strong as it is, we need to be very careful with it because it's a very evasive opponent. It doesn't meet us head on. And there are two reasons why it doesn't meet us head on, and it's a very evasive opponent. Number one is because it is usually not classified as one of the greater sins. We would consider a drunkard or an adulterer or a witch much more of a threat in the minds of the congregation than we would an envious person. The second reason why it is a very evasive sin is because it is a very embarrassing sin to discuss and for which to ask prayer. Let me say that again. It is a very embarrassing sin for which, which to discuss and for which to ask prayer. Public discussion about envy, you just don't hear it that much. Even private confession within our discipleship groups about jealousy is very rare. And the reason why is because we don't want to own up to it verbally. We don't want to admit it. For when we admit to it, we by definition are speaking of ourselves as having some sort of inferiority. And we don't want to expose ourselves as being childish. The last thing that I want to do is to let my opponent know what is on my mind or to let my opponent know that he has something that I desire. For when I do that, then he will feel good about himself and that's the very thing that we are trying to avoid. So, when it comes to envy, we just don't talk about it that much. Well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that I am the only person who is envious. None of you are, and that's the reason it's never discussed. But I think it's probably the first. We just don't talk about it because it is an embarrassing sin. So, what do we do? Well, here's what we have to do. We have to outwardly applaud. We have to outwardly encourage one another. We have to outwardly smile at the success of others. Outwardly, uh, we can be very, very uh, congratulatory to someone. When they get married, well, congratulations, we're very happy. But inwardly, we can be very envious and singing in our hearts, Where can I find a woman like that? You see what I'm saying? And for those reasons, much grace is needed 
in order to conquer this sin. And it is sin. It was Lucifer's pride and jealousy of the Almighty that motivated him to form a coup among the angels. And as a result, he was cast out of heaven. It was Eve's envy of God's knowledge that propelled her to eat and then to share. It was jealousy that was crouching at Cain's door because of his sacrifice of salad, which was unacceptable to the Lord, but his brother's blood sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. And was it not jealousy and envy that motivated the brothers of Joseph? Because he was the favorite, and he did have a nice coat, and he was a dreamer, and he got to stay home while they all went to work. But it was envy and jealousy that motivated them. It was the catalyst that propelled them to throw him into the pit, and then eventually out of sight, out of mind, and off to Egypt. It was jealousy that put Daniel in the lion's den. And as we read the story of the prodigal son, it was envy and jealousy that caused the older brother to speak disrespectfully to his father and to say after he came home from work, look, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. I am angry. This is unfair. And then we see the ultimate offense of this sin of envy from the Sanhedrin, from the Jewish religious leaders. And they fabricated a case against Jesus. And Pilate knew that the reason why this case was fabricated against Christ was because of envy. Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. For he, speaking of Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. Which leads me to a very notable side point. And that is, as hard as we try to mask, remember I said a few minutes ago that it is a secret sin, as hard as we may try to conceal our envy, usually it's pretty easy for others to detect. Now, my mother wasn't able to give me a chapter and a verse on this one, but I think she was right when she told me growing up, Eddie, whenever you hear someone put another person down, it is usually just an attempt to make themselves look good. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And the Sanhedrin could not live with the fact that Jesus was more popular than they were. The popularity that he was gaining was the popularity that they were losing. And as oblivious as Pilate was, and you read the Passion account, Pilate was very oblivious to what was going on. As oblivious as he was on that Good Friday, he was able to see through this and he was able to tell that they were envious. He was able to see this very clearly. So, where does this monster find its origin? Remember our point that we're on right now? And that is that envy comes naturally. Where does this monster find its origin? Well, the answer is it finds its origin in the human heart. In other words, just like you do not have to learn how to love, in the same way you do not have to learn how to be envious. You don't have to be influenced in order to be envious. You don't have to be talked into it or convinced. It just naturally happens. Being envious is as much a part of you as the color of your eyes. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 22. 
Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and covetousness and wickedness and deceit and sensuality. Here's the next one. And envy and slander and pride and foolishness. This comes from within a man. Oftentimes, you will have children who are born within a couple years of one another. And people, in an attempt to be kind, will bring a gift to the home of uh, the people that just had the newborn baby. And they will give a gift to the baby. What they will also sometimes do is they will bring an additional gift for the two-year-old or for the three-year-old. Now, why do they do this? They do this because they understand human nature. They know that, that envy comes naturally. They know that the child who was used to ruling the roost in the house now is, taking second, is, is playing second fiddle, and so they will provide a gift for the older child too because they understand that. I remember the scene like it was yesterday. We were in the kitchen of our home, We were announcing with great joy to our three children, to our three children, that another baby was on the way. There was Parker, and there was Charlie, and there was Savannah. Precious little Savannah. Now here she is. She's, She's not even three years old yet. And we said, Mommy and Daddy have some good news. The good news is mommy's going to have another baby. And instantly, Charlie's reaction was he turned to Savannah and he said, Ah, you're not going to get to be the baby anymore. (laughs) What was his point? His point was, until you came along, I was the baby. And then you stole that from me. Now, you're getting a taste of your own medicine. You don't get to be the baby anymore. He was six years old and he fully understood envy and how it works. Now up to this point, if you haven't noticed yet, I have used envy and jealousy jealousy somewhat interchangeably. Um, Because the definition of the two words, it's very hard to define the difference between the two. There is a difference, but it's very hard to define the difference. Usually when there's one, the other is present as well. They are conjoined twins. Now, I don't often, those of you that hear me preach a lot, I don't often like to use uh, plain English dictionary definitions because it really is different when you're translating from either Hebrew or Greek into English. But I think in this case it's going to be helpful. Envy, when it is used as a noun, is defined as follows. A feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, or possessions. Let me read that again. Envy, as we define it in English, is a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, success, or possessions. Jealousy, on the other hand, it's very close, but jealousy is resentment against a rival. A person enjoying success or advantage. Those are pretty much the same. I have trouble drawing a clear line between the two. But whatever the case, envy comes naturally. Which brings us to point number three. And that is that envy is ugly. Envy is ugly. 
Practically, it says, I want what you have. It's greed. It's covetousness. It's good old-fashioned selfishness. It is envy is King Ahab who wanted Naboth's vineyard, and so he committed murder or allowed his wife to commit murder in order to get it. It's King Herod looking at his brother Philip's wife and saying, I want her, and stealing another man's wife. And the root sin was envy, and eventually it cost John the Baptist his head. It's you when you hear someone else sing and you say, what a voice. I hate that person. Or when you hear someone preach and you say, I wish that that was me up there. Why are they getting that opportunity and not me? It's you when your coworker gets a promotion and you say, what about me? I'm just as worthy, if not more so. And even if you can't sing or you can't preach or you're not a productive worker, envy still teaches you to say, I want to be acknowledged as though I can. Envy is ugly. Why can't I? Tell me, why is it? Why is it that I can't have the sensitive husband? Or why can't I be the one to have the wife who is in shape with the P90X abs? Or why can't I be the one with the smart kids? Or why can't we have the extra bathroom in our home? Why do I not have what I want? Life is not fair, and it's evidenced by the fact that I don't have what you do. Why is it that you are laughing at their jokes and you don't laugh at my jokes? Aren't my jokes funny? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. (laughs) Why, when compliments are being distributed, do they never find my ears? (sighs) I say this partly in jest, but I say this to let you know that I struggle with this sin myself. Sunday, I was riding home in the car with two of our interns, Chandler and Lexi. As we're riding home, I hear Lexi say these words. You are such a good speaker. And meanwhile, while she's saying those words, I am saying to myself, prepare your humble retort, Ed. And she says, you are such a good speaker, Chandler. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. I stood here for two hours and labored through 1 John chapter 3. He sat there for two and a half minutes with a little graven image. And she says, you're such a good speaker, Chandler. And now I say that and I realize that, that, that it's humorous. But I'm telling you, in my heart, I am saying to myself, something is not right here. It just, it just came up right away. Immediate envy in my heart. But it goes deeper. And it's just worse than me wanting what you have. Envy is ugly. It teaches us to say, I don't want you to have it either. Solomon unearthed this principle, this truth, when the two prostitutes came to him in 1 Kings chapter 3 with a baby. And the other baby had been killed the night before. One of the women had rolled over in the night and suffocated the baby. The baby died, but both of them now claimed 
to be the mother of the one living baby. And envy says, I deserve a baby just like you deserve a baby. But if there's not going to be, if there's only going to be one baby that's going to be there, that baby should be dead as well. So if you have a dead baby, then I have a dead baby as well. Cut it in two, king. And Solomon looked at that and said, this woman is not the mother. Why? Because envy wishes harm on those who have more than we do. Matthew chapter 20. A man goes out to hire some people for work. Starts off really early in the morning. He goes to a group of of day laborers and he says, Gentlemen, I will give you one denarii if today you will work. We're going to start at 6 and we're going to end at 6. You need to work for me for 12 hours. Fair enough. He goes out and he hires some more people at 9 a.m. He goes out and he hires some more people at noon. He goes out and he hires some more people still at 5 o'clock. The people who got to work at 5 o'clock made the same thing as those that got to work at 6 o'clock in the morning. And what was the response? Matthew chapter 12, 20, verse 12. These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Translation, either give us more or give them less. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating, for it shows really what the sinful heart of envy is like. For nine years, grade school, junior high and high school, I wrestled. I was one of the bigger guys, so I wrestled last. There was another guy on my team. He was the best wrestler on our team. He was lighter than me. He would go out and he would wrestle his match. And I would be sitting there on the bench and I would be clapping and I would be cheering and I would say, let's go. But in my heart, I was hoping that he would lose. For if he wins, then he makes me look bad. If he would lose, I would put my arm around him and say, it's not that bad. I would walk away saying, now is my time to shine. Why? Because I am wicked. I am wicked to the core. I didn't love my teammate. I loved myself. If you know anything about our family, we don't plan anything. I mean nothing. We just live life as it comes. And so if you happen to be one of the children that is home when I get home and I get a whim... And I say, we're going to go into the city, or we're going to go to a movie, or we're going to go to a baseball game, or we're just going to go and we're going to do something fun. If you happen to be at the house at the time, you are the child that is taken away with me. I'm going to tell you, in 22 years of parenting, I have never come back to the house with the child that has gotten to go, say, for example, to the movie. And the other children or child that is left at the house has never greeted that child with, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that you got to spend some time with dad. No, the response is always, why didn't you wait for me? Why? Because jealousy is ugly. Here's how Benjamin Franklin put it. To find out a girl's faults, praise her to her girlfriends. Good job, poor Richard. I think the most vivid illustration of envy in the scripture is seen from King Saul. You remember the story of how King David, or before he was king, kills Goliath and then he becomes a war hero. And the women begin to sing. And what do they sing? They sing that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. 
And Saul is green with envy. He is eaten up with jealousy. He tries multiple times to kill David. And he actually personally, this is the king, he actually personally goes out to hunt him down like an animal. He is obsessed. Now, by contrast, consider Saul's son, Jonathan. He's the legitimate heir to the throne. And he doesn't walk around the palace singing, I just can't wait to be king. No, he knows that Samuel has anointed David. He knows that God has ordained David. And he is David's best friend and he loves David like a brother. So how does Jonathan respond when his father is jealous and envious? He does not help his father murder David. And he will even warn him of coming danger. And he was not in his heart envious or jealous. Why? Because love does not envy. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1 says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What a story of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you that envy is what we do by nature and love is what we do by grace. And, and there was a lot of ability and skill and, and gifting in the church at Corinth. The members had become envious of one another because some were seemingly more in positions of glamour than the others. The current set of elders were envious of Paul because of his influence as an apostle. The factions within the church, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They were jealous and competitive with one another. And Paul throws down the gauntlet here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 concerning love and concerning the sinful, carnal, fleshly, competitive nature of spiritual gifts. And he says, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. If you don't have love, you are nothing. And if you are jealous and envious, you do not have love. Brothers and sisters tonight, please don't be deceived. We are going to talk about love this summer. And this is a matter of the heart. You can verbally say to one another, I love you. And we should say to one another, I love you. Because we do love one another. It is okay for Christians to say, I love you to one another. It is encouraged for Christians to say that we love one another. But you can say that you love a person. You can cook for them. You can clean for them. You can give them money. You can visit them when they're sick. You can write them in a encouraging note. You can pray for them publicly. You can praise them verbally. You can even say kind words behind their back, telling all who will listen what a blessing you think they are. But if in your heart you cover, covet their success or their gifting or their praise or their possessions, if you have a party in your heart when they fall short. You are jealous, you are envious, God is not fooled, and he knows that you really do not love that person at all. And tonight, look, God has already known this. My goal in this message tonight is so that you will know this about yourself. You love you. You don't love them. Love does not envy. Turn please to the book of James, or you can just look at it on the screen here. This is a fairly accurate description of what was going on at the church in Corinth. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We looked at that Sunday morning. It's demonic. Here we go. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That describes the church at Corinth. A free-for-all of unbridled showmanship, sensuality, and confusion. Why? Because envy was allowed to progress unchecked. And we do not want that poison here at North Shore Baptist Church, but we do have that poison here at North Shore Baptist Church. And the reason why we have that here is because we have you and we have me. So, we must examine our hearts and we must repent of this sin. And it is sin. We must call it sin. We must repent to the extent to which we are guilty. And so I want to make this very practical for you tonight. We can say that we want to love one another. But that's not really true unless we are willing to repent of our envy and our jealousy. So there may be people in this room. You might be looking at the back of their head right now. People in this room whom you seem to love outwardly. But you know in your heart that there's a root of bitterness which is there and been there for a long time and it's deep down. You are envious of that person and who they are. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight with conviction, I want to give you some practical steps that will help you have victory over this sin. And there are four of them. And we will end with these four points of application. The first point of application in overcoming and repenting of the sin of envy is this. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who makes you differ from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? In other words, you are different from others. Now, who made that difference? And the answer is God made that difference. And so to be envious of another person is just another form of rebellion against the sovereign hand of God. God, you did not distribute things properly. You overlooked me. And it is so inconsistent to call yourself a Calvinist and to quote from Romans 9 and to say that God can do whatever he wants to do with respect to salvation. But when it comes to the distribution of earthly pleasures, he is doing a poor job. No, one who really believes in the sovereignty of God will say this, whatever my God ordains is right. He is sovereign and he has put me where I am And what I see when I look in the mirror is what he has given me. My station in life, my boundaries in life, they have been put there by God and blessed be the name of the Lord. In this context, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it has to do with gifting, okay? Some people were envious of the gifts of others. Paul says love does not envy, but we can make it broader than that. When you look at another and you are envious of what they have, you wish you had what they had, you don't want them to have what they have, you are calling into question the sovereignty of God. God, you got this one wrong. 
Second point of application. If you recognize it as sin, then you need to treat it like sin. And the way that you deal with sin is to confess your sin. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The humorous story that I told you a few moments ago about the young lady saying to Chandler, you are such a good speaker. And then the offense that I took at it, took, took to it, is nothing more than sin. It is self-love and pride which needs to be repented of. It's not just a natural human reaction. It is a sinful natural human reaction. And what we do with sinful natural human reactions is to repent and to pray and to be held accountable and to seek for grace, for help in our time of need and to pray to God and to be honest with God and say, God, I am so in love with myself and I have such a hard time with this person and I am so envious of this person. Lord, I need you to change my heart. I wish to repent. I wish to be different. Oh, I believe in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from this sin. Lord, I take the sin to you. Let's not just say that it's a human tendency. It is a sin and we need to deal with it like sin because that's what it is. Number three is very practical. Pray regularly for the success of, the, of that person. And sincerely do what you can practically to bless that person and to encourage them. If you do this consistency, consistently, the envy will die. I'm going to tell you, if you are praying for a person... All the time, the envy that you have for them will go away. Now, just kind of a a little side note of application. Do not go up to someone after the service tonight and say, I just want you to know, I have hated you for years. (laughs) Now, you might need to do that if you've slandered their character or if you've done injury to them. But they probably don't even know. Repent of it, be kind to them, pray for them. And then finally tonight, the last point of application. Take intentional steps to mortify your flesh by doing as much as possible to put yourself last. Let me read that point again. It's it's, it's a long point. Take intentional steps to mortify, to put to death your flesh by doing as much as possible to put yourself last. I want to close by giving two illustrations. They are back-to-back in Scripture. One of them is negative. One of them is positive. First for the negative. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 20. Here we go. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee... This is Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons... And kneeling before him, she asked him, him being Jesus, for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at the left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink the cup. This is speaking of martyrdom here. You will drink the cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now here we go. 
Here's the envy. Here's the jealousy. Here's the indignation. Verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why were they mad at James and John and their mother? Because they thought it was inappropriate? Absolutely not. They were indignant because that was the position that they wanted for themselves. James and John just got there first. Verse 25. But when Jesus called them to him, he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is the way of the world. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Put yourself in the back of the line. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Let me read the point again. Take intentional steps to mortify your flesh by doing as much as possible to put yourself last. When you come to a conscious place in your life where you have understood the reality of your sin and the grace that has saved you, where you should be right now, which is in hell, there is no other response but to put yourself at the back of the line and put others in front of you. Esteem others better than yourself. And then the positive example comes in the very next verse. Jesus says in verse 28, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life, there's the gospel, to give his life as a ransom for many. In the ultimate act of submitting to the sovereignty of God and putting himself last, Jesus went to the cruel, rugged cross and died in place of his enemies so that they might become his friends. The gospel is of first importance when it comes to conquering the sin of envy. And so when you look at who Christ is, the pure, holy Son of God, God himself, and how he was treated, how he was beaten, how he was humiliated... And how he responded, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and he didn't even open his mouth. And then you turn around and call foul when you get one cookie and someone else gets two. It's just out of balance. When we look at the world around us and say, I am entitled to have more, in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus who is God and we are called to have this attitude in us, which was in him. Jesus, who is God, and how he was humiliated. We are so unlike Jesus Christ. We need to be like Jesus Christ. But more than that, we need to look at our Savior. Not just studying him and walking as he walked. We need to do that. But more importantly, we need to look at our Savior and realize that he was the only one who lived free of the sin of envy and jealousy. And we need to thank God that the righteous record of Jesus Christ by faith belongs to us when we trust Him for our salvation. Oh, may God, oh, may God rid our lives of sinful envy by His grace. Father in heaven, we by nature love ourselves and are envious, and Lord, it's ugly. Lord, we don't want to be that way. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. Jesus, please save us. Jesus, please help us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.